Welcome to the Two Journeys Podcast. This is episode 10 in the book of John, where we talk about John 5, verses 24 through 47. The title of today's podcast is The Scriptures Testify About Jesus. Andy, this is a wonderful portion of Scripture. I know I say that every time, but every time John, through the Holy Spirit, gives us something new to think about and something deep, what are we going to see in these verses today? Well, the fundamental idea, the entire gospel is written that in reading it, we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have eternal life. One of the the secondary themes right behind that is that we will never believe in Jesus apart from the testimony of Scripture. And this is probably the clearest section in the Bible on that, that the Scriptures testify so that we may believe. And if we do not believe the Scripture in their testimony about Jesus, we will not be saved. So in the end, everything we can ever know, everything that it's even possible to know about Jesus comes from the written Word of God. And so fundamentally, Jesus in this section points us to the Scriptures as they testify to Jesus. All the other testimonies to Jesus come at us the same way. Like John the Baptist's testimony comes at it through the words of Scripture. The Father's testimony comes at it in the pages of Scripture. Uh, The miracles that Jesus did, we read about it in Scripture. Everything comes down to the Scripture. I know you've talked about this before in in your teaching ministry, but Jesus had an unshakable conviction that the Scriptures were the Word of God. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. I I think he knew better than we do uh, what I just said, that if we do not believe the Scriptures, we'll not believe in him. And if we do not believe in him, we'll be lost. And he came into the world, not that people would be condemned, but that they would be saved. So he uttered clear testimony to the unbreakable nature of Scripture. He said Scripture cannot be broken. He, uh, He was quoting Scripture on the cross. He absolutely rested every aspect of his life and ministry on the prophecies of the Old Testament, the words of Scripture. Now we have the New Testament as a testimony as well. So yeah, no one can have, it's impossible to have a higher view of Scripture than Jesus did. But if we are going to be saved, if our souls are saved, it's saved because the Holy Spirit has worked in us the same conviction that Scriptures are the very Word of God. Amen. Well, I'm going to read verses 24 through the end of the chapter, which is 47. Jesus is speaking here. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted to the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. 
and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures, because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So I want to ask you, give us a quick overview of the four testimonies to Jesus that we're going to see here, and then we're going to talk about each one. Well, he refers to his own testimony, and he says that it, it wouldn't be valid to be a better translation, not that he's lying, but it wouldn't be accepted because you need testimony of two or three witnesses. So he reaches out for the testimony of John. John the Baptist testified that he has seen and testifies that he is the Son of God. Uh, the Father himself testified from heaven, and the works uh, that Jesus did uh, testify uh, to him, and then ultimately the one we've centered on the most, the scriptures testify especially he mentions Moses. So those are the testimonies Jesus mentions here. I want to start with verse 24. He started with saying, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. One of these things we see here in John is the present tense on the word has, has eternal life, like you have it now. Um, sometimes in Paul, he will more speak of it as something you're going to gain in the end, like in the end, eternal life. Can you talk about the different perspectives of the biblical writers and how you know they're both true, but each are emphasizing something different and, and why John is special here? Yeah, first of all, John 5, 24 is a, a verse similar to John three sixteen, worthy of memorization and kind of standing alone. I, I use it frequently in witnessing. I think it's a very important uh, verse. Uh, whoever... Uh, hears my word and believes him who sent me, God the Father's testimony about him, has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has passed over or crossed over from death to life. Love it. It's a great verse. It sums up a lot of things. So fundamentally to, to the question you're, you're asking, once we do that, once we hear God's word in Scripture, spoken into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, and accept the testimony it gives us that Jesus is the Son of God, that we are sinners needing a Savior, that Jesus is that Savior, and we call on the name of the Lord. At that moment, we have crossed over or passed from death to life. So we were dead spiritually. Uh, we we're dead in our transgressions and sins, Ephesians 2 says. Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead. So we are in a, spirit of, a spiritual death until we believe. And so we're biologically alive, we're able to hear things, we're able to understand things, but we're spiritually dead until the Lord grants us faith. And at that moment, then we cross over from death to life and we are alive now, even while we live in the body now. But there is an, an already and not yet aspect. There is a, a, an eternal life, an aspect of it that's yet to come. And that has to do with the resurrection, which Jesus mentions in this very same passage. Yeah, I think it's such an incredible concept, you know, you mentioned Ephesians 2, where Paul mentions also that um, you've been raised and seated at the right hand right. Uh, with Christ in the heavenly places. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and I'm just thinking of other verses talking about um, just being raised with Christ. And most people don't, I don't think they think of themselves having been raised and having received eternal life in the moment. They always, you know, I usually think of it as something I'm going to receive. 
But the fact is that Christ's life has started now. Absolutely. Like he's already resurrected our souls. I love the finality of verse uh, 24 as well. Uh, once you cross over or pass from death to life, you can never go back. There's nothing that the powers mm -hmm. of hell, that Satan or the world can do to get you back. You're safe. You're yeah. secure. What no, can separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. We're, we're, you know, having been made alive, we cannot die. And that's what eternal life is all about. We will never die. So that just gives you that sense of security. Let's talk about verse 25. He says, An hour is coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. All right, so is this the zombie apocalypse? What's happening? <laughs> that's the very thing we just talked about a moment ago. To, to be dead while you live is to be spiritually dead. It means to be unregenerate. It, needs to, it means that you're not yet born again. And so you were spiritually dead, but then you hear. Like Lazarus was physically dead, we were spiritually dead. You hear by the sovereign working of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. He works in us sovereignly to hear God speak through the scripture concerning his son. And when that happens, we come alive. We are raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. So no, it's not a zombie apocalypse. It's even more exciting than that. And he says, um, and this speaks of the life, he says, for as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son to have life in himself. But then he also says, he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Um, so let's talk about why Jesus is a fitting judge of all the earth as son of man. Yeah, this is a very important theme here. Uh, Jesus is presenting uh, the fact that he is the one who will sit in judgment on every human being that has ever lived, all of them. So anyone that has ever been a human will be judged by Jesus. He is the judge of all the earth. But again, he uses that submissive language that the Father granted him the right to become the judge of all the earth. He, he gr gave him judgment. So the judgment what belonged to the Father and he gave it to the Son, similar to all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So Jesus is presenting himself as the judge of all the earth here. It's an amazing claim. Do you think there's any theological connection with God giving Adam the dominion that you know, he originally gave Adam dominion over all the earth and then obviously Adam essentially gave it up, you know, lost, lost you know, and Satan became the prince of darkness. And then Daniel sees this vision of one like a son of man who the father's, the ancient of days, is going to give the kingdom. Yeah, you know? I, I love that. And you, you bring it up, the, the very same phrase that Jesus uses here, the son of man. And so he is given dominion. He's given authority over all the nations and over, over all of the, the empires to rule over them. So that's a, a beautiful connection with Daniel chapter 7. But yes, the authority to judge comes from God the Father. He has it and he gives it to his son. Why does he tell them not to marvel at this? Why, first of all, why would they marvel? And then why does he say, don't marvel at this? Well, look at the claims he's making. Uh, you know, he's, he's claiming to be the judge of every human being that's ever lived. He's coming to be their judge. He, or again, this is a very hostile setting here. They're very angry at him for healing on the Sabbath. And, and all of John 5 is right in that context of that. And he's saying, I will judge you someday. You're going to come before my tribunal and I will evaluate whether you live eternally or die eternally. So it's really quite marvelous, quite amazing, quite astonishing. But he says, do not marvel at this. Meaning, I think to some degree, be so astonished that you just say, I can't believe it. It's not true. I think it's... it's so a, be a more marvel in unbelief. Marvel in unbelief, yeah. Or be paralyzed by it so that you can't get benefit out of it. That's the way I take it. Don't marvel so that you get no proper benefit out of this teaching. Now, he does uh, speak of the dead hearing a voice again. That seems like a little bit different uh, situation than verse 25. He says, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Yeah. 
and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to a resurrection of judgment. Right. So this seems to speak of the last day. Yeah, and there's a, a phraseology that's different. He says, the time is coming and now is, in the first case. So that's yeah. going on now. Yeah. But this is a time is coming, and he doesn't say, and now is. This is a yet future time. And this is what theologians call the general resurrection. And we Christians, this is the clearest teaching that there is in the Bible on the idea that both the righteous and the wicked will come up out of their graves into a new state or new condition of their circumstances. This is not easy to harmonize with you know our teaching, eschatological teaching or future teaching. It's hard to understand. Are people taken out of heaven to this moment and out of hell to this moment and then they are given an enhanced experience of both? I think that's what I believe that they, they were in a very good place, but not yet fully saved. The disembodied spirits, absent from the body, present with the Lord. They're up there in heaven. They're happy. They're free from death, mourning, crying, and pain, but they're not yet in resurrection bodies. And then those in torment uh, didn't believe. They immediately go from this world into agony. But the experience would be greatly ex uh, greatly enhanced or, or multiplied after this moment that Jesus is referring to here. That's the best way I can harmonize it. In any case, Jesus is going to call the dead out of their graves, and they're going to come. The The infinite authority here is staggering. Yeah. He says, do not be amazed at it, but he's going to do that. He's going to call people up and out. And I really link this with the sheep and the goats uh, passage in Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the nations will be gathered before him. This happens, I think, before that. You talk about marveling. I mean, this is this is possibly the, the, the biggest demonstration of power the world has ever seen. It right? really is. You know, it, raising absolutely. billions of dead people. Absolute authority. He has the power to do it. They're all going to stand. The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. They're going to come up out of that, and they're going to come up. Those who have done good, he says, will rise to live. Those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Now, we need to be very clear. We need to bring in our theology from the Apostle Paul and from other places in the Bible. Uh, the righteous are not going to be raised because of or on the basis of their good works, but the good works are evidence of their genuine justifying faith. That's the way we harmonize all these teachings. And so not because they did good works, they'll be rewarded with resurrection bodies, but they are righteous people who, because of a genuine faith, did good works. That's how he's identifying them. They will rise to live. And then the wicked, who, uh, because of their unbelief, did genuinely wicked things that were never forgiven, will rise to be condemned. Now, Jesus is going to start this defense, or you know, basically giving the witnesses uh, to his ministry. He says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is very characteristic of his ministry, always explaining that the Father is the one who sent him, the, the Father is the one who dictates what he does. And he says in verse 31, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Now say again what you said before about what he what he's explaining here. He's not saying that he's not allowed to. He's just maybe saying it, it wouldn't be credible. Or? Well, first of all, the simplest way to read it is incorrect. You know, Jesus never says anything that's not true. So if we just take a simplistic reading of it, go ahead and read your translation. Yeah, ESV says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Well, the NIV has the word valid, and I think that's more, more accepted in a court of law. And that's just because of the rules God set up that, that on the testimony of two or three witnesses, every, every matter is established. So that's, I think, what he's saying. But we know that he only ever speaks the truth. And if he says he is the Son of God, it's true. And if he says that he's going to be the judge of all the earth, it's true. If he does all of that, it's true. But he's saying, I have lots of evidence. I have all kinds of evidence here that I am who I claim to be. And I think that's what he's turning the subject to now. Now, verse 33, he's going to start with John. 
you sent to John, he has borne witness to the truth. And he says, I'm not seeking testimony from man. I don't need John to bear witness about me. But nevertheless, John was the, the forerunner for the Christ. So just talk about John and how he bore witness to the Christ well, and how it was an, prophesied. Sure, what an incredible thing Jesus says about him here. He was a lamp that was burning and shining. So there was heat and light in John's ministry. Uh, very few people ever preached with the power that John did. He came in the spirit and power of Elijah, as it was predicted in the book of Malachi. So he was a, a very austere, maybe scary kind of figure. He lived out in the desert. Uh, there was nothing about his life that was worldly. There was, he had no worldly appetites. The things that, that, you know, the lusts and the appeals and, the, and all of that, it meant nothing to John. He was filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. And he was, Jesus said, among those born of women, there hadn't risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. So Moses wasn't greater than John the Baptist. Daniel wasn't greater. Abraham wasn't greater than John the Baptist. Incredible statement. But John said, rightly, he, didn't, he, did, he wasn't worthy to stoop down and untie Jesus' sandals. So there's this infinite gap. And you get that sense. Jesus says, I don't really need John, but you do. So John was very famous. He was the most famous man at the time. At, the, at this point, probably early in Jesus' ministry, more famous than Jesus. Although that would change. He became greater and Jesus, uh, Jesus became greater and John became less. Now it's definitely true that Jesus is far more famous than John. But John was the forerunner to the Messiah predicted a voice of one calling in the desert. It's exactly how Mark's gospel begins. It was also stated in Matthew's gospel as well. He was predicted, one of the few human beings ever ever predicted in the scriptures other than Jesus. And that was that John the Baptist would come, a voice of one calling in the desert. Uh, I remember one pastor put it this way about John. He came to prepare the way, to proclaim the way, and get out of the way. And so that is very memorable. He prepared the way by his baptism, heightened expectations, denied being the Messiah, got everyone ready for Jesus to come. He prepared the way. Then when Jesus came, he proclaimed the way. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, which he saw earlier in John's gospel. And then he was removed. He was taken out of the way and became lesser. Yeah. His next witness is he says, uh, the works. So he does John, then he goes to his own works. He says, the works that the fathers gave me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So how are the works that Jesus did a testimony that Jesus is from God? It should be obvious. <laughs> His opponents even say this about him sometimes. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about the miracles ultimately, the, the, the signs and wonders that Jesus did in all of history, in all biblical history, in all church history, there is no one that did as many and as great miracles as Jesus. Now, later in John's gospel, we'll have to come to this incredible statement. Jesus said, greater works than these will you do. And we have to understand that. And I think that just means greater in scope and ultimate magnitude. But in terms of the miracles themselves, Jesus did more of them and greater miracles than anyone that had ever lived. And they are a valid basis of faith. He said, believe on account of the miracles. He said that to his own disciples in John 13 or 14 is one of those chapters. He said, on the basis of those miracles, you can believe. So if you look at the miracles and if you're elect and you have a heart to believe, they are a valid basis of faith in Jesus. Later in this, in this gospel, the most important summary statement in the whole gospel, John chapter 20, says Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, in the, in the gospel of John. But these miracles are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of the living God, and believing you may have life in his name. So that's clear. 
according to those verses, John 20, 30, and 31, that the miracles as written in Scripture are a valid basis of believing that Jesus is God. I find it so interesting when modern people so quickly dismiss the miracle accounts. Yeah. Jesus' miracles, you know, he does it in in Palestine in the, in the Roman Hellenistic era mm-hmm. at a time where you have very real, intelligent people, the kinds of people that are building Herod's, te- Herod's Second Temple Judaism, Roman Colosseum, the kind of people that are building the, the Colosseum. Aqueducts, they, unbelievable. It's, it's incredible. These are not um, backwater fairy tales. This was done in the open. And then thousands saw and believed. Yeah. And so to just discount the, really, to discount the miracles is to discount the, the witness of hundreds and thousands of people who were very intelligent, who saw the miracles. Now, some rejected, some saw, and then, you know, the guy that saw and told the Pharisees about the resurrection of Lazarus. But many saw and believed. And to just wholesale discount them is actually very uh, ignorant and closed-minded. It really is. It's arrogant. But the fact of the matter is, let's be honest, people born blind didn't get healed. People been in the tomb dead for four days, they didn't come out. I mean, the, the... you don't have to be a genius to know that, that, that sickness is sickness, death is death, and, and there's no answer. And when Jesus was laying hands on people and they're immediately healed of fevers or paralyzed people and paralyzed for decades, they get up and start jumping around and, and walking. And I mean, that just doesn't happen. And so I don't care how backward you are, or how country bumpkin you are, or how, you know, whatever, you know that's, that doesn't happen. That's a miracle. And they're written down here as clear testimony of the power of Jesus. And they also answer the deepest needs that we have. We, it is the greatest miseries that we have in this life are things that you go to a, a major metropolitan hospital to try to have solved, cancer or you know, other issues, loved ones that are facing death or actually die. And so for Jesus to come and, and have the answer to that, that really harmonizes all of what we know about evil and sickness and death in the Bible. Jesus is the answer. Yeah. The next witness he gives, he says, the Father has testified about him. He says, the father who sent me has borne witness about me. Interesting, he says, his voice you have never heard and you have not seen him. Nevertheless, the father testifies about Jesus. Um, in what way would this have been a credible witness to them when he says you've never heard him or seen him, but I see him and I know him, and he testifies about me? Well, it's interesting. All right, first of all, we can just keep it simple. The father testified by speaking with a voice from heaven saying, in one account, this is my beloved son whom I love. In Mark's account, you are my beloved son whom I love. I believe both of those things happened. There was a testimony to the surrounding people that this is my beloved son. Again, on the Mount of Transfiguration, exact same message to Peter, James, and John. This is my beloved son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And then in Jesus' case in math, in Mark's gospel, you are my beloved son. So he spoke to him. Now, in the mystery of the incarnation, Jesus, I would have to say in his humanity, did not always understand who he was. But at some point before age 12, when he said, I had to be about my father's business, he knew who he was. So somewhere in there, the father spoke to him effectively and told him who he was, who his father was. And then by the time he's beginning his public ministry, there is absolute clarity in Jesus' mind and message. God is my father. And he said it over and over. So the father spoke to him and the father spoke about him to surrounding people. This is my son. And the last one is scripture, which we've talked extensively about. The scriptures testify to Jesus. I think some people have put lists together of prophecies, you know, in the Bible that testify. I think the the biggest one is up to 300 and something prophecies. But some of them are super clear, like Isaiah 53 or 
um, you know, or Psalm 22, and, and some of them are, are more obscure, you know, maybe like ones from uh, Amos or things like that about raising up the booth of David. Mm-hmm. But um, nevertheless, the scriptures in their entirety, they testify about Jesus too. Why should we, 21st century people, believe because of the Old Testament scripture? Well, it's, first of all, it's utterly unique. There is no other religion in the world like this. There are no Hindu prophecies or no Buddhist prophecies. Any Islamic prophecies are in the Injil in the New Testament. Um, they're not strictly speaking, Muslim prophecies. The cult's prophecies don't come true. So this is it. Uh, Isaiah 40 through 49, God again and again says in those 10 chapters, I alone can predict the future. I send my messengers and they tell the end from the beginning. But the most important way that God told the end from the beginning is about his son. So that Jesus would be identified among all the billions of human beings that have ever lived, that he would be a son of Abraham, a son of David, he would be Jewish, and that these things would happen around him, that he would die with his hands and feet pierced, that he'd be raised on the third day, physically raised to life, and that the message would be preached to the ends of the earth. All of those things have happened. And so that gives us an absolute certainty of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Without that testimony from scripture, we would be lost. Everything depends on the written word of God and Jesus and God the Father intended that it be that way. Yeah, I, I think it's so important. And I know this is a vast oversimplification, but you know, many people ask, like, why did God you know, come through the Jewish people? Or why this whole backstory of the Old Testament? I think that's the reason, is that so we would know. It's like we have to know the story, and he has to have a way of preserving his word, and the Jewish people was that mechanism. Absolutely. I've, I've liked to, I tend to think of it in terms of an address, like a mailing address. You know, you have a zip code, you have, let's say, a state, a city, a road, a number, an apartment, and a letter, you know, like 173B. Um, and the more and more specific than you can find that person. Jesus has to be found by us. We have to identify him. And so little by little through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, you know, all of that, we triangulate on Jesus. And then by reading these accounts, we have eternal life. I want to ask one last question uh, before we close the podcast. Uh, Jesus zeroes in on Moses specifically, which we know is kind of an idol for them. And he says, uh, you search the scriptures uh, because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. He says, there is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. So unpack those things. Unpack first how Moses wrote about Jesus and how Moses then is a condemnation on the unbelieving Jewish nation. First of all, just the shock of the statement, he wrote about me. I mean, how would, I mean, it's like they got to pick up stones to stone him or just fall down and worship him at that moment because that's just an incredible claim. Moses, who lived 15 centuries before Jesus, wrote about me, he said, but he did. Deuteronomy 18.18. Yeah, you got Deuteronomy, you got the bronze serpent, you got just the animal sacrificial system that in every respect points to Jesus. You've got the crushing of the serpent's head in Genesis. So so you got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You got those five books, and there are ample predictions and prophecies and types and symbols. You got Genesis 22, where Abraham has said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and offer him up as a sacrifice. God will provide on the mountain. It's there. And so Moses wrote about Jesus. And so if all you had were those first five books, you'd have enough to be saved. Do you have any final comments before we close? 
Well, uh, obviously, there's so much more we could say, but just for me, the, this is, we are not done being saved. Neither you nor I, we're not done in heaven. So what we need to do is we need an ongoing, energetic faith in Jesus. The scriptures are the food of our faith. The more we saturate our minds in scriptures, the greater Christ will become in us. The more vivid will be our view, our vision of him. Though we have not seen him, we love him. We're going to love him more and more the more we immerse our minds and hearts in scripture. Amen. Well, speaking of the scripture being food for our faith, the next podcast, episode 11, we'll talk about Jesus feeding the 5,000. From John chapter 6, verses 1 through 24. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.